Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome back to part two of our Moral Distress podcast featuring Dr. Margaret Carno. Again, Dr. Carno is Professor of Clinical Nursing and Pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Nursing in Rochester, New York. Welcome. To follow up on our previous discussion, what would be an example of moral distress in a rural area? In a rural area, it could be that it's hard to get access to more advanced Uh, care. Sure. You know, you know this person really needs to get to the ICU. They've waited too long to come into the ED or transportation is limited. Or it could even be that there is only one ambulance in some rural areas and you need to send three patients. And how do you pick which Mm -hmm. patient gets sent? Wow. Yeah. Oh, those are great examples. Yeah, that's, that's, I actually had a telehealth experience at one point I did telehealth and I had a couple call in and he was having severe chest pain and they were, they lived on a small island and the only access was a boat and it was nighttime and there was no light on the boat and she was there alone with him. It was, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, that really makes sense. And I'd forgotten about that scenario until you brought that up. So that's a really good point. Here's a, maybe not a tough question, but a question from a different angle. If someone's having, if a nurse is having a really, or any practitioner interdisciplinary is having a moral distress with a scenario, I know you talked about the blood transfusion example. Um, Is it ever, I think I know the answer to this, but is it ever appropriate to try and convince the parents or the family or the patient to do something that is against their own beliefs? because? They're not consistent with your own or do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do know where you're going with this. I think the key is open communication with the families. Okay. And to provide the most accurate information you have. Okay. Because even amongst nurses, you could have two nurses that think one situation's fine and another nurse think that the, that same situation is wrong. True. That's a good point. Yeah. So open, being open and honest with the family, not saying that I wouldn't do this because families ask, you know, what would you do if this was your mom? Right. And trying to go back and say, what were your mom's wishes? Uh Had you talked to them about your mom's wishes? What else have you, you as a family talked about? You know, is there somebody else I could bring in to talk about them? Right. There are cases where we thought the patient was sedated enough and nurses have commented and other healthcare providers have commented that, you know, if the, maybe not right to the family, but if this was my loved one, I wouldn't put them through that. And then the patient wakes up and knows uh, that people said that. 
that can be quite difficult to face that patient. Sure. I think the other difficult thing is for family members in particular, if they have a loved one who the staff feel that, so the family wants to keep the patient alive and Mm -hmm. the staff feel that, you know, it's against all odds that they're going to pull through. They can always find a story, right, of someone who yeah. did. And but I love the I love that you talk about just giving them all the facts and presenting it, yeah. presenting it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because that's all we really can do. We can't force patients or families to do what we want them to do. That's not our role. Right. Our role is to support them, and I think that's what makes it hard. And really what brings the moral distress out, because it's like we wouldn't do this in this situation. And now we're part of a situation that we don't necessarily believe in. Certainly, certainly, I think anyone that's listening to this now has been exposed to some form of a moral or ethical situation. But do you feel like there's varying degrees? Does it always become, is it always a distress, do you think? Or is there a certain point where that, oh, right, you spoke about crossing that line. Yeah. And the line is individual for everyone. Right. And I think that's what makes it hard to discuss moral distress, makes it hard to do research on moral distress, because there really are so many components to the actual definition that we're not sure while the instruments are all been tested and felt reliable, are they really measuring what we want them to measure? That's a good question. Given that, where did you start with your research? Like, where do you start? Your journey Um, is interesting to me. It's just been... Slowly reading articles, being exposed, you know. One thing about being an educator, I also practice as a nurse practitioner, is that I have a little more time, unfortunately, to think about stuff like that. Right, right. You know, and students come back to me and go like, how would you handle this, you know, that are practicing nurses? So that's how I really started to read the literature see what's out there, talk to people that are bigger experts than I'll ever be in the situation about the topic. Sure. But it's just that self-learning. Yeah. And and obviously, you've been exposed to it throughout your career. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other examples that you can share with us of of moral distress from, from your pediatric experience? Another big one in peds is when you have child abuse and you don't know who the abuser is and you have to let everybody in. Yeah. Wow. Because you don't know, you have suspicion of who it is, but you don't know exactly who it is. So that's one example. And another example in adults, and you brought it up um, a little bit, is with prisoners or people that may have committed an illegal crime and the police are trying to figure out if they have or not. Right. And you're trying to protect the patient's information, the patient's rights. And you have police um, talking, you know, trying to get the information from you. 
Right, right. That can be distressful also. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Of course, uh, we talked just a little bit before before we were recording that, uh, you know, my experience has been in adult critical care. And again, hats off to our peds nurses, because as I mentioned, we're usually one or the other. And I always admired pediatric nurses for what you do. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly been exposed to situations like that. And I think it's important as as practitioners, as as professionals, that mm-hmm. we be able to talk our colleagues off the ledge as, uh, yes. Yes. as the saying goes, because I've had a couple of experiences. That criminal in particular, he had, uh, you know, his daughter was actually in a bed in the same ICU and she had been a victim of of his rampage. So we, and she was really critical. So it was challenging, but I've had at least three situations where I've had nurses say, I don't even want to give them pain medication, right? Because they're so angry. But I think it's crucial that we all step up in that situation and support each other and Mm -hmm. remind each other of what our role is, because that can't happen, you know? No. Our role is to take care of the patient in front of us. Right. Who we've been assigned to. Yes. And of each other. I think we forget that piece sometimes, right? Because it's the patient and then it's the family. But it's important that we look after each other, especially when we get newer nurses who have those first experiences and come to us for advice, you know, to be kind and grace, give, you know, give grace in those situations. And be kind to each other, no matter how long it's been that they've been a nurse. Yes. Because the other thing, too, is if COVID has taught us anything, and I hate bringing up COVID. I know. But we don't know what's also going on in people's lives. That's it. Yeah. So, as you said, we need, just need to be kind to each other. Will that eliminate moral distress in everybody? No. Right. I mean, as long as there has been some sort of health care, there's been, you know, moral distress. Sure. You can read examples from, I happen to teach a course, it's the history of cancer, and you look back at some of those early treatments. Uh-huh. And there were people that were like, no, you're going to kill the patient. And then there was others saying, well, this is all we've got. So let's try it. Wow. that's I love that you're bringing these up because every time you say them, I think, oh, yeah, you know, we've been exposed to ones just like that. But that's, yeah, there's so many. And I think, obviously, as you said, it's not just nursing. I know we're focused on nurses for this podcast, but physicians as well, I mean, they have a lot of issues with that as well. Yeah, our physician, even our pharmacy colleagues, depending upon where they work. And so it could be a perfect storm if the healthcare provider, let's say the physician or the nurse practitioner, is really stressed about the situation. And the nurses are really stressed. And let's say OT or PT is really stressed. Mm. You have s- everybody starts feeding off of each other. And yeah. somebody needs to recognize that and say, hey, let's just take a moment to breathe. 
We might not be able to fix the situation, but at least we can recognize it. Yes. It's interesting from an interdisciplinary perspective. I remember a scenario in particular in ICU where the patient was really ill and the family was was waffling. They were at that stage where should we or shouldn't we? And they requested that their pastor come in. And the pastor was the one that convinced them to keep going when it really clinically was not the right choice. And the outcome was what we suspected that it would be. But uh, he was the one that, um, that, you know, flipped the switch in the direction of uh, keeping the patient alive. As practitioners, we were really frustrated by that. As you can imagine, it was just a, uh, it was a really sad situation. And so to your point, it can come from any angle from mm-hmm. anyone that's involved. Yes. Yeah. Boy, I'm remembering all these situations. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> that we've kind of suppressed and... <laughs> Yeah, it's challenging. You know, I remember one colleague in particular at one point saying to me, I feel like I'm a professional flogger. And that's when I said, okay, we need, you know, we need to talk about this. And I think that's the important piece that you've really brought to the table here. And I appreciate that is that if you start to feel that way, that's the time to start to tap resources and look for help. Yeah. Because there might not be anything that we can do. Right. We have to remember also, too, that healthcare or medicine or nursing, however you want to say it, is an imperfect science. Yes. There's still a lot we don't know. There's a lot of things that we learn, trial and error, and we're only human, and we need to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing's black and white. No, it's all shades of gray. <laughs> Every shade of gray. Isn't that yes. the truth? This is, this is really an interesting topic that I, I'm really loving. Do you have any information on cultures or different cultural perspectives other than the U.S.? If not, that's fine. Um, a lot of this has been done, I have read, in other healthcare, like there's been a lot done in the UK about it. I have not read anything where culture plays into it. Got it. I think that is a huge area of research that we really need to look at. Yes. Yeah. Because that is so important when you work in an environment with so many different cultures. Yeah, that that's a good point. That would be challenging. Because we all have different beliefs, and that obviously affects those, right? Yes. And how we approach things, and who is the decision maker, and how do we respect the family and patient's culture? Right. And what they believe in, and what they find healing from. Yes, exactly. Because certainly in critical in critical situations, the family becomes a priority if if the outcome isn't looking. I mean, not the we don't we always look after yeah. the patient first, but their their okay. needs at some point have to step in. Any that you any personal experiences with this that you would like to share with us, or your um, most difficult? No, not most difficult, but I can remember we've had. 
a First Nation ceremony. Interesting. When I was working in another city, but in the same geographical area that I'm am now, and that didn't it brought the family peace. I think a hard one was when the community is paying for the health care and they say no to something that's very expensive. So uh, you're trying to optimize medically what you can do. Wow. But the family is grateful that you're not punishing them because they're not doing X, Y, and Z. That you're trying to help to get their loved one out of the hospital and have the best life possible with what the community can afford. I think those are some examples. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, these varying scenarios keep coming back to me. And I think it's probably helpful to to speak about some of them. When you talked about culture, this is an interesting example in that you might be surprised by my reaction to this, but we had a patient who had a below the knee amputation and the family requested to have the limb. Uh, now, that was a cultural belief that if you buried it, under a tree or with a tree that it would give back to the earth. And, you know, it was a valid reason, in my oh, opinion, yeah. but the, the healthcare system or the hospital, there was just no way that they were going to give that up to them. And that bothered me in a way that I, I know people are probably thinking, why would you think that? But for, I felt that they, oh, yeah. it was right. It was perfectly fine for them to have that for the reasons that they were stating. Oh, yeah. So or that was... Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, please go ahead. Or if they wanted to cremate that, or if the person wanted to cremate it. Yes. Yeah. Because you can cremate just a limb. Yeah, exactly. So that was an interesting situation. And many are like, do that with placenta, right? After birth, there are a lot of cultures that Mm -hmm. want to bury the placenta. And obviously, they're not the majority, but they are, there are still cultures that will do that or families with that belief. belief. And, you know, my ethical dilemma, moral dilemma was more with the hospital at the time than it was with that request, which, you know, some people listening may feel completely differently. And I think that illustrates the point that we all come from a different place on this stuff. Oh, yes. Another example that has been a hot topic has been non-heartbeating donors. Interesting. So not everybody, you know, in the healthcare profession believe in them. The idea that, you know, you go to the, usually what happens is you go to the OR, you let the family say goodbye, you extubate, you wait for so long. Until the heart stops, then you go back in. Sometimes you don't have to restart the heart, but other times you do, depending yeah. upon the organs you want or the organs that I should say are being donated. So th- there are a lot of different situations I think that you and I have brought up where there could be some significant moral distress over. No, I can definitely see it. And again, some very, the degree would depend on the situation and the individual. You know, I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic. I am so pleased that you have offered this up to us to do this 
podcast with us. Again, it's something that we all come across. But as soon as I saw the topic, I went, oh, this is going to be good. It's And it has this really good information. Will your research continue on this topic? I will keep exploring. I don't know if I'll keep doing research, but I will keep exploring and learning. And I consider that research also. I think we put in nursing that research is, you know, where we're actually doing the experiment mm-hmm. or the design or whatever. But really, research can be looked at as just opening up your own knowledge right, about right. the topic and looking for what is new, what has changed. You know, have we looked at the culture issues? So I think that will continue. I know that will continue. Excellent. I love that you said open our knowledge. Because I think this is a really key point when it comes to moral, ethical issues for those who are listening is uh, we may not agree with someone else's choice, but I think learning more about people's beliefs and their, you know, religious or otherwise, and getting ourselves to a place where we can be more accepting of people who have views or requests that are unlike our own only helps us to grow as individuals and to become more effective in our practice. Uh, Or just looking at what tools are out there to help you as an individual to support yourself, to build your resiliency, as we have talked about. Yeah, your self-care point was not missed. Let's bring that up again, just briefly. But self-care People say, oh, you know, self-care, whatever. Self-care is crucial in this profession, yeah. especially when it comes to the moral moral distress, in my opinion. In hindsight, in my own career, yeah. those were the things that stayed with me the longest after my shift, let's just say. You know, there's a lot of things and, that we see. And how we do it. You know, it's not just getting a manicure or a pedicure. Right. But it's what we do every day to support ourselves. So whether it's journaling, whether it's just doodling, whether it's singing nonsense into, you know, a speaker and just getting it all out, that that is all self-care. And that's all self-care everybody can afford. Yes. Not everybody can uh, has the time or can afford the great, you know, hour and a half long massage. Or they might right. not even like it. But yeah. everybody can doodle. Yes. Yeah. You know, so everybody yeah, can I, journal. Even I love if they that. just write words down. Yeah. Yeah. Journaling's huge. Yeah. That really yeah. helps just to get things out and and there's some objectivity at some point that will seep in during that process. So that's fantastic advice. I'm always happy when someone reiterates the importance because it's not an easy one. It's very rewarding, no question, but it's not an easy one. All right. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? No, I think we've covered them all. We I have. really think we have. Yeah, it's a great topic. I'm really glad that you're sharing your expertise with us today. That's a It's an important topic. I've learned even more. I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. And we hope you've also enjoyed this podcast on moral distress featuring Dr. Margaret Carno. EliteLearning.com has a variety of great courses to help you throughout your profession. So we always encourage you to take a look and see what else, what other courses or podcasts you'd be interested in 
in participating in. We thank you so much for listening. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.